Welcome to Life's Pivots and Potholes. Each podcast is a fun, deep dive into how other people from varying occupations, age groups, and countries navigated their life decisions. Join us as we discuss the unexpected benefits, funny stories, and difficulties faced, which all led to the next stage of life. Today, my guest is Linnea Wardwell. And Linnea, I want to welcome you and thank you so much for joining me. I'm I'm excited to hear about all of your pivots and potholes. Thank you, Robin. It's nice to be here. So you started out as uh, someone growing up in Westchester County. Is that in New York? Yes. Yes. It's in New York and suburban New York City, the height and the depth of suburbia. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and I, I think you also called it white privilege, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had every marking of white privilege. You know, I had, um, uh, let's see, I had, we had a house with a swimming pool out back that my mother eventually tore out to put in an organic garden because she began being radicalized by Rachel Carson. But until that time, it was all straight suburbia. My dad was in business for himself and he had multiple businesses and would always drive into New York. We had a nice fancy house and there were some pivots on their part, but for the most part, yes, it was definitely a life of white privilege. So you were at that time, I guess, being groomed to go to college, to have a career, to be a strong career woman? Maybe. That wasn't emphasized as much back in 1964 as it was as it is now. And I did want to be have a career. I wanted to be a teacher. That was one of the main things. And I got a teaching certificate in higher education, actually, in school. But um I tried student teaching and I found that the students were so funny that I started laughing at everything they said. And that was the end of discipline. And I'm sure it was only because I was just a few years older than they were in middle school. And so that just got me thinking, maybe I'm not really cut out to be a teacher because I would either want to bring them all home and adopt them or, you know, just not be able. I, I couldn't do discipline. So I decided maybe something else was for me and I didn't quite know what. Which is interesting because you wanted to be a teacher and essentially today you are, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. (laughs) That's where you were headed. And, and then you met your husband. Yeah. 1966. And you, you know, the story well, I'm sure (laughs) Robin, but um, it was in the airport in Columbus, Ohio, Ohio, through just sheer serendipity. I was going to a small school near Columbus. He was going to the Ohio State University and we were in an airport together waiting for a plane for a student discount in a snowstorm. And he was in line uh, and then his friend was in line and then I was in line and we all had numbers. And so for the next flight out of Columbus to New York, uh, his he Larry got on and his friend was left behind and I was left behind. And at the last minute, right before Larry got on the plane, he turned around and he said, but wait, Wesley, you've got to be here for a uh, your rehearsal dinner for your brother's wedding. Here, let's switch. And he they gave each other the tickets, the numbers. Wesley got on the plane and Larry stayed behind, turned around and said, oh, hello there. <laughs> <laughs> And he took me to dinner in the Columbus, Ohio airport. It was his birthday, oddly enough, which is um, interesting. And uh, then the flights were canceled out of Columbus. And then we flew to Pittsburgh and then they were canceled. And so we ended up spending about five hours together in various restaurants and (laughs) bars and things talking. 
And that's when I realized that this was something, somebody that I had never imagined existed in my little suburban world. He'd had a wide range of experiences and never went by the book, never went by the rules, and still actually does not till this day. I was going to say, and that's <laughs> Which, true, boy, he's maintained Drives me that. a little crazy, but you know, that's what makes this whole thing work. <laughs> so we, um, I had a year to go and he graduated. So he went to Washington, D.C. to work for the government. And I had a choice when I graduated to go to Norway to do geological field work because that was my second passion besides teaching was earth science and geology. And I was going to do field work or I was asked to go to D.C. and be a fellow at the Smithsonian in their new geology hall and help write exhibits and pick out things. And I'm not sure if they ever used any of that stuff, but I I knew that if I decided to go to D.C., I would get married. And that's exactly what happened. We didn't stay separated long. We moved in together. And in that fall, we, um, we got married. And it was, um, uh, it just was meant to be. So and we continued long- working for the government, but not for long. And how long have you been married now? Uh, let's see. We got married in 1967. So figure that. It's probably been about 54 years, something like that. Yeah. That's so amazing. It is pretty amazing. It is. It is. I mean, that that in and of itself is a, a huge accomplishment in life. Yeah. And yeah. advice for anybody, it's you really do have to continue to work at it. You never get it totally figured out. And that's the that's the thing I think I've realized more through this long, long marriage that I've had that it's never done. You know, you can never say, oh, we are there. <laughs> you know, there's always stuff to figure out, always stuff to give, always stuff to, you know, just kind of adjust as you go along. So you and Larry are working for the government in Washington. And what did you do? <laughs> Larry was working for the Defense Department in the <laughs> Pentagon. In the Pentagon. Okay, and you don't he, understand yet why that's <laughs> funny, but but we're getting there. <laughs> he was a uh, defense analyst, which meant that he um, analyzed all kinds of reports from people overseas during the Cold War to figure out what the Russians had and how they did it and, you know, what products they were making and all about their military and all that stuff. It's very top secret. And I worked for the Smithsonian, and then I got a job for the Geological Survey that fall. And both of us worked in little green cubicles, in stale air with cigarette smoke, and we would meet every lunch hour for lunch by Thomas Jefferson. We brought our little thermos of stew, you know, and our sandwiches, and we would just meet there and talk about what we wanted to do and what we thought we would do. And pretty soon a plan emerged that we would drop out because it was 1968, and we had a little savings, and we had a little um, 122S Volvo sedan and uh, that we dubbed Old Dusty because really dusty on this trip. And so in 1968, in May, right after the cherry blossoms bloomed, we left everything, took our savings, packed up our old Dusty, and headed west to see what was happening. Well, and there was a lot had, uh, happening in the west at that point in time. I mean, right, that, it's that true. Was, and yeah. yeah, we thought we'd go to you know um, the Bay Area in California, first of all, just to kind of figure it out. But we took a lot of great detours on the way, and we we met a lot of really interesting healers. That was one of the things we were doing. We were researching healing retreats and methods of healing. And we got actually got asked to stay at a very um, uh, established naturopathic clinic back then to be the practitioners and teachers there. But that was in Ohio and we were done with Ohio. So we decided that really we needed to look further and we went down to Baja to a healing retreat down there. And we got stuck in the sand in Baja and got pulled out by fishermen. And and finally, we made it up to Berkeley and 
it was interesting. There was a lot of spiritual seeking, but there was a lot of drugs in 1968. And the drug part really turned us off. People kept giving us drugs and we kept burying them in the backyard and then forgetting to <laughs> dig them up because, because everything was illegal back then, even pot. You know, it was very dangerous to have anything. And Larry had been uh, inculcated by the government always to be careful, <laughs> although he didn't work for them anymore. And so, um, uh, we lived in the Bay Area, actually in Oakland, in a little rental we had. And then we decided that we could take our savings and buy a little bungalow that we saw in Oakland. And we still were pretty enamored of the Bay Area because they had a lot of stuff going on that was really interesting. Art and, you know, culture and meditation and all that. So we bought this little tiny bungalow in the hills of Oakland with a panoramic view of San Francisco Bay. Forget this. $7,500. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so that, um, we didn't really make anything on that house, but, um, but it was, um, that was kind of what my dad used to call a, we shoulda, you know, we mm. should have had on to it, but you know, we've been through so many of those. We don't even pay attention to them anymore, but, <laughs> but, uh, we, um, we went into Berkeley regularly and we found that there was a different speaker at the student union every single day on spiritual values. And so they would have a yogi and they would have a, a shaman and they would have all these different, really interesting people. And we decided that we really wanted to learn what spiritual life was all about. And we had no idea how to do it. No idea. We read books about it. We called them our seeker books, you know, by Vivekananda and Yogananda. One of my favorite books is Autobiography of a Yogi. But we just had no idea what practice to practice. And it was sort of our goal is to find somebody or something who could teach us about meditation and spiritual development. And that was the focus of our search at that time. Uh, and so we um, went to the union and the yogi guy would be up there in his white robes and he would say, oh, let's close our eyes and meditate. And we'd be looking around saying, well, okay, but well, what do we do? You know? <laughs> and it was nice. It was quiet. But then um, we went to a, a lecture on transcendental meditation, which at that time was extremely huge. Everybody was learning in droves all around the country. It was taught by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who's had some mixed press in the, in the press. But uh, we began, began a, a path of becoming teachers of meditation and interactions with him that really showed us our, you know, th that he was a really dedicated person to uplifting humanity and compassionate and also funny, which made a big, a big difference to us. He had a great sense of humor. Can you kind of unpack what transcendental meditation is a little bit, just so people kind of have a reference point of, of what that is? Well, that's a good question, actually, because it's, um, it's a specific technique and you learn it specifically from an, a, a specific teacher who's been trained in the technique by Maharishi and his teachers who teach it. And um, you meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. And they utilize a vehicle called a mantra to take your mind within or to deeper levels. You close your eyes, you begin the certain mantra or word that you're given during meditate, during um, instruction, and a certain way to use it so that you don't concentrate, you don't think about your breath, you don't worry about thoughts, you don't worry about distractions, and automatically the mind is taken within because that's really where it wants to go. It wants to go to fields of greater happiness. We all know that. We're always looking for more happiness in the outside, but really the inner happiness, the stability, the absolute, the transcendental is the most appealing of, of all to the mind. And so once the mind gets even a taste of it, it just wants to go back. 
And so the first time we learned, especially Larry, he had an incredibly cosmic experience. I was a little more prosaic and practical, <laughs> but um, but we uh, continue, We started meditating and in the Berkeley Center, and there were lines around the block at that time to teach. Uh, I mean to learn, and um, and so we learned how to meditate, and we did it twice a day in our little bungalow in Berkeley, and pretty soon got really disillusioned with the drug culture because there was a. There really, you realize once you start contacting those subtler levels of, of the mind and the nervous system that it's such a delicate instrument and you can really, really mess it up with drugs, overload the circuits, and then it's hard to, to really experience that fineness of, of awareness. And so we really got disillusioned. So we decided to move up to the mountains in Willits in Northern California. Okay, well, before we talk about that, because one of the things that's happening in our world today is the use of hallucinogens and psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And so how does that kind of work and fit in with meditation? Does it? You know, that's a really interesting question. I think nowadays, because there's so much hard packed stress in the nervous system of so many people brought about by whatever we can attribute it to our culture, our fast moving pace, our stress from the latest pandemic, everything. There are so many people who are so deeply depressed and you can meditate, but it's hard to motivate yourself to meditate when you are so down and so, you know, in such a bad place. And so I think it's a possibility that these, uh, these therapeutic doses of psilocybin on, with a person who's uh, kind of like a guide it can give a person an experience that shows them, oh, wait, you know, I can get out of this. This is not me. And in that state, when they come back, then it might be possible for them to start meditation and actually sit and meditate and have some, you know, because it, it takes a little determination. You got to set aside the 20 minutes twice a day. You know, it doesn't just happen. But, um, but it's so worth it. It's like an investment because you don't do it for the experience. You do it for what, ha- what happens afterwards. You bring more of that inner absolute silence into your daily life. And then you just find it's like an anchor. Very few things can really throw you off course. You're just steady, solid, and you know, bringing some of that bliss into, into life as well. So it might open the door for those people. I don't really know. I've never had the experience directly. I've never really even talked to a practitioner who's done it, but I have heard a lot of reports and read a lot of books and studies on it. And it looks really promising, but only under the guidance of a really experienced practitioner who can give you a completely safe place to be and the right dosage and all those things. And so I would never recommend it to anybody. It would be something that somebody would have to decide on their own. Yeah, I get that. That's a really good question. Um, Well, I've been, I've been curious about that because, you know, as this kind of opens up and the separation of what is therapeutic versus what is a party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a huge difference. And that's what we saw in Berkeley. Because Larry had gone to Millbrook uh, when we were still on the East Coast before I arrived. He had gone to Millbrook and taken acid with Timothy Leary and expanded. He, he had such an incredible spiritual experience because the whole um, environment was geared toward that. And not to say that there weren't freakouts and all. And I would never also not recommend that, although they are starting to give LSD and therapeutic doses the same way they're giving psilocybin. And so it has to be done extremely carefully. So um, uh, it was really, um, 
Uh, what were we saying? <laughs> no, no, that, that's great because that actually, mm-hmm. you know, t- when you're talking about um, the difference between therapeutic and just oh, doing right. drugs for drugs sake. Yes. Exactly, and exactly. there are a lot of parallels, I think, to what was happening in the 60s. Yeah, and, right, actually. Now and, it's finally coming out that all the studies that they didn't do, they're finally doing after things were completely shelled. Part of that, I think, was Timothy Leary's fault because he just, you know, he antagonized the dominant culture so much that they just freaked out and said, no more. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to study it. Just no more, you know. And um, But on the other hand, he did, a whole generation are grateful to him because he emphasized spiritual development when everybody was floundering, you know. So that's hard to know too. But um, but you're right, it's very similar to today because in Berkeley we found that everybody was using LSD to stay awake and to have these wild parties. And that was not for us. That was not why we were interested in any of that. So that's why meditation was so great for us. I mean, we were really ready to do that because it was not drug, it was something you could do anywhere. As, as Marish used to say, you can find a bed to sleep anywhere. You can find a chair to meditate anywhere. And so you just do it sitting down. You don't have to have any special lotus posture or anything like that. And so it's very, um, it's a very comfortable technique and anybody can do it. You don't have to even believe it's going to work for it to work. So that's what really appealed to us. Right. So then we moved up to the mountains in Willits. Willits. Yeah. <laughs> then there was nobody living there except a few ranchers at that time. And it was way back on the dirt road on a mountaintop away from no electricity, no um, running water. Well, no, we had a water tank in a well and, um, and uh, no, we had a propane tank and that's how we powered our lights. And so every night we would sit by our fireplace. We had a fireplace and listen to sitar music and read our seeker books and meditate. And that's what we did for that whole winter. And we're starting to look at each other at the end of the winter and thinking, there's nobody up here. (laughs) 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 So another pivot. (laughs) And where did you head off to from Willis? Well, before we left DC, we had uh, come in contact with this fellow who sort of had an ashram in the, in the Shenandoah, mountains near old rag mountain those of you who live in the dc area will know old rag well it's the nethers valley and it was uh, two log cabins that were um and he told us about this property that was for sale and so we thought oh this is where we'll go we'll go to be with marion and this whole retreat and you know learn from everyone but in the meantime we started meditation confrontational meetings. He loved to have meetings and observe everybody and see how they reacted and all the psychological stuff. And by then we were done with all that. And so we thought, oh no, how, what do we do now? (laughs) (laughs) And so we were there for a while and we got this notice. Oh, before we left California, we'd gone on a meditation retreat, which is a long weekend. And um, that weekend showed us that we actually wanted to become more involved in the TM. Uh, technique and movement and stuff uh, because we were in this place in Asilomar in Monterey and um, before we left California and we almost didn't go because it said you might be required to wear a jacket and tie to dinner and we thought what oh no this is terrible we don't want to wear and Larry said I'm not bringing a jacket but we got there and believe me it was a much different atmosphere I think they were just trying to get the naked people to stay in their rooms <laughs> a lot so, of a lot of naked people in so the you, yeah <laughs> so you um you get you uh, on these longer retreats you meditate and then you do your asanas your yoga and then you meditate again it's called rounding you go round and around these and it's just so silent 
the waves crashing on the rocks. And then these teachers had just come back from India. And on New Year's Eve, they all stood up and they did the, the traditional puja to the teacher on New Year's Eve. Uh, and I thought, and that just blew the roof off the place. It was just such a powerful spiritual experience, really in the soul, you know, not just a mood, but in the soul. And we looked at each other and we thought, wow, what we've been doing and what they're doing, this is the same thing. And we could do this. And then right then we decided that we would devote our lives to teaching meditation. And so that was, um, then we moved to Virginia and we realized that they, that wasn't what we wanted to do. So nearby Charlottesville, Virginia was the closest town. It was a home of UVA. So we decided, well, we'll just go there and open up a TM center, teach all the students. And, you know, we did that and we had like 20 and 30 and 40 people a weekend learning how to meditate. It was just right at the right time. And it was just so exciting. And then we were like circuit riders. We had a little Volvo and we'd drive to Stanton, Virginia, to the school and Harrisonburg, Virginia, to that school and down to Sweetbriar College, which was a girl's school at that time. And down to, um, uh, oh, um, what's the name of that military school down in Lynchburg? We taught, Larry taught there to the military guys. And it was just so exciting because every time you sat in a room with somebody and you taught them this simple technique and the way we were taught to teach and they closed their eyes could see the difference and feel the difference they sank to such a deep level most of them and it was just so and they would come out and they would look different you know and it was to us that like the highest form of activity to be able to teach so that's what we did so again we've got teaching as a theme so so now you know it's interesting at that that point were you aware that that teaching was part of your gifting, part of what you were here to do? We got more out of it than anybody we taught. We really did. And I think that's the case with all teachers, really. And that's why we kept doing it, really, because it was just a stipend. You know, you didn't get much. You got room and board. A lot of it you had to generate yourself. And we just sort of did this and that to, you know, uh, make a little bit so that we could continue doing this because that was our passion. But, yeah, I think really the teaching part was just so uplifting. There's no way about it. No two ways about it. People, the faculty from UVA would learn doctors and some of the individual situations in UVA when we were first starting were really hilarious, but you know, there's not time to talk about them all. (laughs) But anyway, they, um, they did, they, they responded to it and they started and so did everybody else in all the other schools. So how long, how long did you guys teach TM? We were active in the TM movement for about 15 years. And during that time, there were tons of pivots because we always wanted a piece of our own land in the country like we had had in Willits, but still be able to do what we love to do. And so we were always searching for that. But on the other hand, we loved the TM movement. We felt totally dedicated to it. We would go wherever they asked us to, wherever there was an opportunity. So um, we just kept at it. And then after we did that, gosh. Oh, right. There was, we got this notice that there was a um, a meditation master's degree at a new school, the old Parsons College. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of this. The old Parsons College was purchased by the TM movement back in, what was this then? This was 60, it would have been about 74 or something like that. And, And everybody was called to go there and remodel the place, make it a school. And the first program was master's degree in creative intelligence and the science of creative intelligence and everything not looked so much from the lens of 
just straight knowledge, but looked at from the lens of spiritual development and enlightenment plus just knowledge. And that was a, it was like redoing our whole college education in terms of spiritual spirituality and, you know, uh, meditation. So we thought, oh, this is perfect for us. So we went out and we began participating in that. We moved into the frat house. One of the and there were still pictures of people in togas, you know, the frat and the, <laughs> the frat parties and stuff in the basement. And we got, all got a big kick out of that. And we uh, made a lot of really good friends. It was a wonderful year that we spent there. It really was. So, um, yeah, we taught. We took the master's degree, taught in it, taught some undergraduates there, uh, lived in a frat dorm with three other couples on the same floor and ate in a dining hall which isn't <laughs> someplace I would have chosen but at least it was vegetarian food it was pretty good whole wholesome food and that was good and it was really fun it was so exciting somehow you know to be in on the beginning of all that absolutely absolutely so what what was your next move I, I know somewhere in there you had a child right we did was before we went to MIU and after Charlottesville, we left Charlottesville, we went to teach in Northern Virginia. And um, we were living there at that time, working at the DC center, which was a really vibrant center, teaching a lot of diplomats and, and things. And, and uh, I had gotten pregnant while I was ta- taking some courses. And uh, so we decided to stay there. And unfortunately the child didn't live. And it was just mm-hmm. absolutely heartbreaking. And so we, um, it was only two and a half weeks old. So we decided that we couldn't be out in the public. So we would go to one of these long courses that were happening for meditation over in Switzerland. And so that's what we did. We just up and left. And we weren't really, um, really important parts of the TM center at that time. So it was easy for us to just leave. And we had a little bit of savings and we borrowed a little bit on this and that, you know, the property that we owned out in Virginia and stuff. And we're able to go there. And it was hard, you know, it was really hard, but it was a great atmosphere to be in. It was very healing. And eventually the pain just subsides. It never really goes away, but it subsides. And so then we, um, that was before we went to MIU. And uh, and then that week at, year at MIU was just a blast. It was really wonderful. People coming and going from all over the country, uh, long meditation courses going on for the undergraduates that we got to teach. And that was really fun. And uh, just a general excitement that it was something new and different. So at some point, you decided to leave the um, the meditation center, right? We did. We went to a long course in India, a month-long course. That was really exciting. Marishi called all the teachers that could go to India, and we had no way of going. By then, we had uh, taught at um, a facility in University of Mass. Near- uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts, and a person there had told us about um, this um, great island in Maine. And so we sold our place in Virginia, which was way too hot. We didn't want to live in the southeast anymore. And so we'd found this little place on an island in Maine. And so we um, we retreated here, but we, we wanted to go to this course in India. We were so excited about it because for the first time, it was 3,000 people gathering. And the only place you could meet was in this old, this half-finished uh, office building of the Indian Express in downtown Delhi. And so the half-finished office building was 3,000 meditators meeting. And there was uh, this open window from construction into the offices of the Indian Express. So you'd be in there meditating and there'd be the secretary typing away in the <laughs> 
And that was that was very exciting. To see India was really amazing. We went to Rishikesh after that and bathed in the Ganges River for our spiritual enlightenment with friends. You know, it was it was really lovely. So then we came back to um, to uh, uh, let's see, we we went to Swiss Meadows and then we that at that time we saw this place in Maine. So we, Swiss Meadows was the facility in Massachusetts that we ran. Oh, that's a whole nother story. I'm getting out of order, but that doesn't matter. It's okay. It's okay. But um, Swiss Meadows was a place we, we, when we moved to Massachusetts up north, after we sold our place in Virginia, we wanted to get a place in New England because Larry was from New England and we liked it a lot better. So we were staying in Beverly, Massachusetts. And we, um, we had, this is a huge pivot in our lives actually, because we, um, decided that we wanted to buy a facility and run little courses ourselves, TM courses. And that way we would support ourselves and we'd have a country property that we always wanted to have. And it would just be a nice combination of our activities. So we had a place all lined up to buy. We had a house to rent while we were getting that ready, but everything all in line. And they call us from the main TM movement place. And they say, Hey, we need you. We need you out in Western Massachusetts. We're buying a facility and we need somebody to go there and to run it because the people who found the facility are going to Switzerland for six months. And we thought, oh no, what do we do now? So we walked on the beach. We took a lot. I'll never forget that. And we say, okay, we have the choice. We can do this personal thing or we can do something for the movement where we're really needed. And again, we decided to make that choice to actually go to this facility, start it up and run it. And that's what we did. We gave up everything else. We gave up the contracts. We gave up the rentals. We gave up everything. And it was a hard, it was a wrenching decision, but you know, it turned out to be the very best decision we could have made because that's all we ever wanted to do was do the right thing in life, you know, the right thing. And so that's where we ended up in Western Massachusetts in Williamstown at this uh, small ski resort that they were turning into a TM retreat. And there's lots (laughs) of stories with that, but I could take all day. (laughs) (laughs) So how long were you in Massachusetts? It was about a year. It was about a year. And we did everything. We were, well, we started out with a staff, but then they decided that was too expensive at the main office because they controlled our finances. And so we um, had, we were three couples and we did all the grounds maintenance, all the course office, all the cooking, all the cleaning, everything, Uh, the whole thing we we divided it up it was a huge amount of work but it was like basic training because we figured if you could do that you could do anything we learned so much but the the highest was of course teaching these courses where people would come for long rounding and long meditations and then you would meet with them uh every day and there were some recordings of Maharishi playing and then you would answer questions and to us that was like the highest it was just such a great year even though it was so exhausting but it taught us that you know, I really liked running the course office. I really liked taking registrations. I really liked talking to people on the phone. And it was sort of a precursor to what actually happened later on. So after a year, where did you go? Well, we um, <laughs> we decided that we would go back to Massachusetts. Uh, we, we were in Massachusetts. We went to India for that month. And at that, then there wasn't, because we had left Swiss Meadows by then. It was just too intense. And they had they were talking about closing it because there were all these changes going on in the TM movement. And it, it, we just decided that the people who had originally found it really were 
perfectly capable of running it themselves. And we were grateful for that. So after India, we moved to a small TM center in, um, in uh, Wellesley just to live there. And it turned out they needed teachers. And this was a nice, substantial home on Route 9 in Wellesley, back in suburbia, very interestingly. <laughs> and we became the main teachers at that TM center in Wellesley for, I guess it was about five years. And that, again, was fabulous activity because we served the meditators who had already learned mostly and we taught a few new people and by then there was this thing called the tm city technique where you'd have these larger meetings where everybody get together and meditate and so we would host those and serve meals and host everybody and it was it was wonderful and those people were so supportive and we just loved the work it was really great Okay, well, another thing that's interesting is you were teaching the teachers, which is another part of what you do now. Again, we're not there yet, <laughs> but that's kind of interesting. We're yeah, there were, I mean, they we served them more than taught them, you know, because right. we were all equal, really. But because we had the responsibility, then we served them with bringing people in to meditate together, serve the meals, you know, um, have events and celebrations and stuff like that. One of the things you did in the TM movement back then was to have these celebrations where you gave awards to the local officials. <laughs> you can't imagine. It was so, I mean, and they appreciated it. We had the local police chief. We had a local jazz um, station, you know, radio station. We'd invite them all in for a night of celebration and give them an award, you know, honor them for what they had done and in a way also tell them about what we did. That's so those cool. are all the things we did at Wellesley. <laughs> and right along there, we had a child. It was a nice, stable situation. We had a big place to live, a little room off our main bedroom that had been a nursery. We thought, well, this is kind of waiting. <laughs> so, <laughs> while I was there, I, I got pregnant. And um, then our son was born in the TM center. Not, I think that was his choice rather than mine because I already had a baby, you know, I mean, he was born so quickly and I had arranged for a home birth midwife to go to the hospital, but he had other ideas. He just popped right out and grabbed my hair. He grabbed the <laughs> midwife's hair, started screaming, looking in her eyes. And she said, watch out, you got a cowboy. <laughs> and so we tried to, we had the cowboy in the center for about two years and, you know, raised him up. And then we realized this just will not work. You can't shush a child. You know, when people are meditating, I'd have to take him out, which I loved. You know, we'd go walking on the street. And so um, we decided that was that was time to leave. And so then we realized that we needed to find another occupation that we loved as much. And that sent us on a search. It was a very long search. And that was one, it was a major pivot in our lives. We wanted to find a place that was ideal for Devin, our son, to grow up. And that's not an easy task when you have the whole country to choose from and even overseas, you know, where do you go? What do you do? How do you support yourself? When we were at Wellesley I'd, and, and living in Maine, we, well, this is an aside, we'd open a little restaurant in the summer and we had started selling these little pictures that I painted of the birds and flowers of Maine. And they'd done really well. So while we were at the center, we would work on that business during the day and then teach TM at night. And so that was good because we got a small stipend room and board, and that helped us with all our other expenses. And then we would try to retreat to Maine as, as much as we could, because by that time, we decided we loved it up here on Swans Island, which is where I am right now for the summer. And, uh, and we really didn't want to part with it unless we absolutely had to. And so um, we just set out on a journey. So we how a long? VW camper. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get on the road, um, 
how long was the time period where you you decided that you needed to make a move and then the process you went through? How how long did that take you? Because that's a question that seems to come up is um, how long does it take to make a decision about what to do next? And that's a great question. It's uh, with us, it's always been organic. And honestly, it was so long ago. Our son is almost 40 years old. So, I mean, this is, this is going back. <laughs> but what I remember, and I'm not sure if it's totally accurate, is that the center was, they were talking about selling the TM center because the TM numbers were starting to decline, you know, as things do when they're really popular and all. And so they were starting to think about consolidating the, the centers. And so we thought, well, this is maybe a signal from nature because we were always aware that we wanted to do the right thing in our lives, the right thing for ourselves, the right thing for, that sounds corny, but the right thing for the universe, you know, to serve as best we could. So we thought, well, this might be a signal that we have to, we should do something else for the sake of our son, because we can't really live in a TM center with a young child. It's just not fair, you know, to anybody, to them, to, to him, you know, whoever. And so it just happened within a matter of months. And it's always been that way with our decisions. They've just kind of percolated up until suddenly we decided this is what we have to do. And so um, we used Swans Island as our home base. We sometimes came back here in the middle of winter. We sometimes lived here in the summer. We sometimes rented it out so that we could afford to keep it. But all the time we were looking, and first we started out looking for an ideal village, which is, was a TM-associated facility where everybody meditated. We thought, well, this is perfect. And then we went there and it was kind of interesting. The one in Texas had our first choice because it was out in the country in the hill country of Texas. So we go down there and our son's about three or four. Well, by then he was five. I don't know what we did in between, but something. And we're, so we take our camper down there and we find a little piece of land, you know, that we could afford. And we put our camper on there and our kid starts going to the school. And then pretty soon they found out I was interested in education and they asked me to teach there. And pretty soon they asked me to direct the school. <laughs> and I found out it was a small school. And I found out, honestly, that a meditation community is no different from any other community in this country. It has its share of really wonderful people. And this is a really, really important lesson for us. Really important. It has a share of wonderful people. It has its share of people who are fighting and dysfunctional. And it has its share of latchkey children because everybody's at meditation, which really freaked me out. Because That's these fascinating. Are children. And they figure, well, I'm meditating. What could happen to them? But I would not, you know. Well, anyway, Devin was too young to let him go free range, but I would watch these kids and hear about what happened and they would get all kinds of trouble because they knew their parents weren't home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we, um, we decided that probably it wasn't for us after all. So then where do we go and what do we do? We moved back to Maine. By the time we got that far, it was the middle of winter. We came back to Maine and it was 16 degrees in the house. So we heated it all up, warmed it up, you know, and everything. And then um, just kind of thought. And so I had run, I had started this picture business. So that's how we supported ourselves. So we'd go on the road in the summer 
And then um, we called it clacking the pictures. We'd frame them and send them out to all these gift shops and national parks and Everglades and Acadia National Park and all these parks. And it was not lucrative, but every time we needed the cash, we could get it just by marketing and selling. And somehow it always came through for us. Somehow it always, and it was not, it was a life on the edge. It was not a, a life that you had any wiggle room, but somehow we were really naive and we had all this faith that it'll all work out. And so we we just kept going and it did work out. We were lucky. We're really lucky because if there had been anything to, you know, to throw us down, it would have been a lot harder, but there wasn't, you know, and we, so we camped all around the country looking for the ideal place. We, what else did we do we, with Devin? That was the main thing. And we would base ourselves in, in Maine. And then um, about three years into that, um, we came to live here and Dev, I, we made the decision that probably Devin should go to school for a little while because he wasn't reading. And I never figured out if he was lazy or not, you know, or just <laughs> not being a boy, you know, was later in his life. So it was eight or nine years old. And so we said, okay, why don't you go to the Swans Island school for a year, but we'll take you out in the middle of the winter and we'll travel to the Southwest to do our business and, and everything. And he kind of freaked out, but you know, we told him he should really do this. And within three months of his being in the third grade, he started reading. And he started reading way above the level of anybody that, you know, because we'd always been reading to him. And Patrick O'Brien and uh, Lord of the Rings were two of his favorite authors, um, you know. Um, and so when he started school, he suddenly realized that he should and could read. And so it was more, it seems like it was really a lazy thing, rather than <laughs> an ability thing, because he was, it was so much fun to have somebody read to you. So he stayed here for you know, three or four years and went to the school off and on. It was pretty good until everybody got to puberty in that school. And it was, you know, it was a really nice teachers and everything, but it was a difficult community with some kids who are not as, you know, fun to be around as other kids. And um, so anyway, we decided we had to move and he was in about sixth grade. So this is about um, 1996 to 98. So we're sitting around. Now, this is a case of a really quick pivot. We knew that after certain things happened that we shouldn't stay full time anymore for Devin's sake. So we're sitting around the kitchen table and I say to Larry, well, where do you think we should move to? And he said, we should move to Ashland, Oregon. And I said, what? <laughs> Ashland? That Can't we just move to Blue Hill or Surrey, Maine or something right across the water? You know, why do we have to? He said, no. He said, we've been through there to see your, because my grandmother lived in, my parents both grew up in Oregon. And every spring we used to visit to uh, my grandmother. It was our only great grandchild. So we would come at her birthday around March and everything would be blooming in the Rogue Valley. It was just gorgeous there with redbud and dogwood. And, you know, the daffodils had long gone past in, in March in the valley. And wow. we come back to Maine and we dig in our garden and there's an ice chunk down two feet, you know, <laughs> just like, okay, so maybe it's not so bad. So that's one of the things that motivated him. The other thing was it was a really progressive community, even, you know, back in the late 90s, it really was. And they had a great food co-op. You know, we're a kind of health food nuts and vegetarians and all that. And honestly, in the beginning days, it was very hard to find food in our travels. But now, you know, and Ashland was also sort of a hotbed of natural medicine and organic gardening and all that. So we decided that we would um, we would move to Ashland. So we picked up and it didn't take long. We picked up. Let's see. When did we go? 
we went in the fall after the summer print season and we start and we moved in with this friend who was an artist and she couldn't afford her rent anymore and it was a tiny cabin up in the mountains above ashland so we moved in with her and she moved out to the back uh this little tinier cabin and um we rented from this uh war bride madeline who was french who had come to this country right after world war ii so um we found a piece of property uh in the mountains above ashland and it was only one of two pieces that we could afford and this is sort of a small pivot because we got really discouraged at the property prices even back then and so we looked all over the place and there were two places we could afford. One was on a pretty busy highway in, the, in an S curve that had been logged and the whole property was slumping into the highway because it had been logged and there wasn't anything to hold it. And the second one was another piece of property of about five acres that had also been terribly logged. And there was a big slash pile. Slash means that there's all kinds of stumps and branches and stuff, all piled really high, as big around as a, as a small living room on this property. They had just completely decimated it with skitter roads, you know, big logger roads going up the mountain. And I got out on that property and I said, there is no way I'm going to move here. There's no piece of land that, in this place that has not been disturbed. But Larry was really adamant and he saw the potential and he's always been right in the past. And that's where we stuck, finally. Okay, Here, well, it's about 10 years. Wow. Of looking. Wow. 10 years. We learned, and we, we had a motto, the learning, the learning is in the looking. <laughs> we stayed with so many people. We've talked with so many people. We went to so many ideal villages. We went to so many meditation retreats, went to so many places to find the ideal place. And we suddenly realized there isn't one. There really isn't. But this was about as close to ideal as we could have gotten. Well, and you guys launched a new business while in Ashland, right? right? We were on the road. No, while we were on the road. Oh, wow. We were staying in Massachusetts at a friend's house who ran an herb company. And he said, you know, I need somebody to run this conference. I want to do start doing annual herbal conferences. And I don't uh, have the time. And, and we were at loose ends. So we decided, well, we'll give it a try. And so, so we ran our first one in 1993, 93. Wow. And we've been doing them annually ever since. I mean, it was so fortuitous. And we're really grateful to our friend Rick for asking us to do that first one. And the first one was rocky. I don't deny it. You know? <laughs> we didn't know a thing about, you know, we were really into natural medicine, really into, you know, natural food and healing. My mom and my granny had raised me that way, but I mean, it, we weren't prepared for this intense experience of running a conference, but it kind of felt like the courses at Swiss Meadows a little bit, you know, TM courses. So we could adapt and it was fun. And we met a lot of great people and we thought, oh, we could do this. You know, it didn't come out too badly. And, uh, and people were camping and they had porta potties. I mean, it was a completely different experience. And so we began doing one annually until 96. And then the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine, the guy there knew us and he liked what we were doing. He said, well, why don't you do one here also at the, you know, a different time of the month and so of the year. So we began doing one in April at Southwest uh, and one in May. And the herb company moved to North Carolina. 
And so Rick said, why don't we do them down in North Carolina? And we said, fine, <laughs> happy to do it. So we look on this search for a beautiful facility and we saw several, but we, we, we hit in 1996, we hit on Blue Ridge Assembly, which is a gorgeous piece of property, 2,500 acres on a, a mountainside in the Blue Ridge near Asheville. For some of you, that's where Sandra Bullock stayed. Right. Uh, in the movie, yeah. that's right. <laughs> 28 days, not 28 to be days. confused with 28 days later, 28 <laughs> days. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. It showed a lot of pretty views of that place. It did. Yeah. And it, her falling out of the window, you know, to go get her drugs. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, and what, what is the name of the company? Uh, it's Herbal Educational Services. And we have a website, botanicalmedicine.org. And it evolved over time, you know, because when we first began, we didn't even know what a recording catalog was virtually. And um, and so now what we do is we organize the conferences every year. We ask the top naturopathic physicians and herbalists in their fields to talk about the therapies they use in herbal medicine that work in their practices. So this isn't just research or hearsay. This is actual experience, clinical experience. These are the teachers that we really emphasize. And our goal in doing this is to reduce the dependence on drugs in the, in the mainstream medical community. Uh, to, because many people who go to natural medicine, as you know, go as a last resort. They're taking these drugs and they hope that they'll work. And the doctors are doing the best they can, but especially in chronic disease, it's very difficult sometimes to find the right answer because they're not a disease, they're a whole person. And naturopathic physicians and herbalists treat people as a whole person and treat that whole person rather than just as a disease. And that makes a huge difference. So instead of just writing down what disease they have and prescribing something, they spend an hour and a half usually on the first appointment, talking to them, seeing what they, their life is, seeing who they are, seeing what their, their situation is, what the conditions are that they have, and then going by that whole picture, be it from Chinese medicine perspective or Western medicine perspective or Ayurvedic perspective to see what therapies would be best for them. And that's the difference, really. And that inspired us so much because I have natural medicine going way back in my family. And to me, it was just a logical outcome to, to do that. And Larry, of course, loved it because he loved schmoozing with the people and getting everybody together, you know, and, and making a good atmosphere for that kind of happy uh, sort of introduction. Makes a, we found it makes a huge difference in the whole meeting, the whole weekend, because these are just weekends, you know, but you plan all year for them. And that's what we do. And you can check that out at botanicalmedicine.org, folks. And you can find the links and everything in the comments section. So, Lydia, one of the ways I actually wrap up my, um, my conversation is an homage to James Lipton from the Actors Studio mm -hmm. and his 10 questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Except I made my own up. Okay. All right. What is your favorite place? That is really hard. I have two of them. Swans Island, Maine, where I am now, and Ashland, Oregon, in the mountains above town, where we <laughs> live the rest of the year. And I honestly, I think if we had to choose, we'd live full time in Ashland. But when every time we come back to the ocean, every time we come back to this island, it is more precious. And so what is your least favorite place? <laughs> <laughs> any deep, any deep city. <laughs> I don't go near them. <laughs> it's 
it's like, nope. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So what about social media turns you on? Nothing. (laughs) Okay. We have completely abdicated social media to somebody we hired a couple of years ago. And because I tried doing it, and honestly, I think there's a lot wrong with it. And it's useful in a lot of ways, but there's so much wrong with it, especially for kids. And everybody puts their best face on. Very few people talk about how horrible the day went. And when they do, everybody just kind of groans and say, oh, they're complaining again. So you can't be your real self. You have to be somebody else on there. But help it helps us because we let people know on social media about what we're doing. And so that does help. And it's a conflict, you know, because we're buying into that platform that's doing all those negative things to benefit ourselves, you know, in our business, let people know. So right now, there's no rationalization. We just do it, you know. I guess you could rationalize because that's where the people are. So you have to go where they are. But yeah, I don't have anything good to say about it, really. Okay. Except that, you know, they do help us spread the word. I <laughs> okay. I should say that. So what are your favorite silly things on the internet? <laughs> Larry's jokes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite technology? Actually, I really love email. Because before email, I could never contact any of the teachers. I'd have to badger them. I'd have to send them written letters. I'd have to wait for a letter or a call back from them. And now everybody's on there. They're always looking at their email. It's like, it's crazy that the minute you write a teacher, even the busiest person, you usually either text or mostly just email, you almost immediately get a response. And so that to me is my favorite just because it makes my work so much easier. Okay, so what is your least favorite technology that you have to use? Personally, I, I get a I have a real problem with Zoom just because I don't, you know, it's hard to hear and see yourself <laughs> because that's the last pivot we took, actually. We had to go completely to digital uh, on online uh, with a space of about two and a half weeks for the first conference because of COVID. So that was not my favorite, but it's a useful platform. So I suppose I could say that. I don't like it, but I use it because it's great. (laughs) So was it harder trying something new or doing something you didn't enjoy? I've always been game to try something new. If I wasn't, I wouldn't have been stayed. I wouldn't have stayed married to Larry. So it's something if it don't enjoy it, I keep thinking it's a sign from nature that I shouldn't be doing it. You know, I like that. I really do. I I like Okay, that's not working because you are miserable. And I've been in those situations certain jobs I've had to support us, stuff like that. So yeah, it's been pretty obvious. So that is a very easy decision. So what one item would you take to a deserted island? (laughs) Well, that depends if you can get your facilities there, you know, your food and your water and stuff. I take water first if it was deserted, that deserted. But if it had all that stuff, um, family, my husband. (laughs) <laughs> does that count? Yeah, it does count. I think it, it well, <laughs> arguments could him. be made. <laughs> arguments could be made. <laughs> so when you're old, what are you going to look back with um, fondness? The whole trip. Mm. Honestly, I have been one of the most fortunate people on this planet. And I am not ever denying that, even though sometimes life is hard and challenging. It has been such a string of fortunate events. And, you know, you can say, oh, it's because you always try to do the right thing. Oh, it's because you met. No, it's just that we have been so blessed. 
We've been blessed with a wonderful kid. We've been blessed with wonderful work. We've been blessed with wonderful coworkers like you. I mean, we've been so blessed. It is just, um, that's what I look back on. And I can hardly believe that I am here where I am today. After all those journeying, all that seeking, all that looking, it finally, you know, got me here. And I honestly don't know how. (laughs) I really don't. (laughs) But I'm really lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Lydia, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you doing this today. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome, Robin. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, you can follow me on Instagram at Pivots and Potholes and on Twitter at Pivots Potholes. Thanks again.